whether it was online courses or selling on a webinar or pitching stuff in person, like none of it felt right to me. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. But see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Um, Atomic Habits came out about a year and a half ago, and I pretty much have been in book mode since then. Uh, a lot of traveling, a lot of keynote speeches and um, book talks and all that kind of stuff, interviews like this. And uh, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. Habits is like a high enough level that whenever you talk to someone, uh, you're talking about how to specifically apply it to their thing. You know, like in this case, how to apply business or um, I spoke with uh, Steffi Cohen, Hayden Bow, who do hybrid powerlifting. And like, so that was like a much more fitness application. Um, so it still has been fresh for me, which has been fun. Um, but I am starting to look toward the next thing. So I, I just began work on a new manuscript uh, a couple weeks ago and we confirmed and sold that to, to Penguin Random House. So I'm going to work with the same team as I had before. And uh, I like topics that are like kind of timeless and evergreen and habits is certainly that way. Like habits will be just as relevant in 30 years as it is today. And so I'm looking for something that kind of pairs nicely with that for the next one. Um, I haven't quite figured out the perfect frame for it, but it's kind of circling ideas around choices, strategy, decision-making. It's kind of like after Atomic Habits, you could ask, okay, if it's great, I know how to build better habits, but like which habits should I focus on? Like how can I use my time in the highest and best use? And so this is this new one is kind of focused on that idea. Like how do I, how do I choose things that make the most of my limited time? Um, so one is strategy and one is action. And this is kind of a strategy one. This is a really interesting topic for me because obviously the 2 PM audience, um, I would say tends to believe in concepts around deep generalism. Um, mm. I mean the, the entire notion of 2 PM is that, uh, you're, you're better prepared for, your specific specialty if you have a deep general knowledge of other specialties. Um, so in that context, as a professional, um, how do you discern what to focus on versus um, maybe other potential pursuits or anything like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll just like throw out a couple of the things that I've, I've used and been toying with recently. So the first one is, and, and many entrepreneurs and uh, folks know this already, you want some kind of leverage. Um, you want the ability to, a couple of different things, like you want to be able to multiply yourself. So in the case of like uh, writing a book, it can be printed again and again and again and be distributed all over the world. And I only had to write it once. So that, that replication ability, I think is crucial. And obviously the internet has just magnified that effect because you can write one tweet and it can be retweeted a million times or, you know, all kinds of other stuff that we can do online, software, et cetera. So that form of leverage, uh, I think is a really good thing to look for. Um, 
the, and also to just provide an example of this, I think you can do that in almost any field. Like uh, traditionally, a teacher stands in front of a classroom and talks to 20 students, but you could take that same lecture and put it on YouTube and it could be viewed 10 million times. And so their technology provides this leverage that we didn't have before. So I think that's one thing to look for. Would you say that leverage is? Would you say that leverage is the core of your argument as it relates to strategy moving forward? Hmm. Um, yeah, it probably is one of the core tenants. I don't know if I have a clear enough vision of it to say it's the only core, but it definitely is a, a huge piece. You can't. Um, the way that I look at it is that your effort sets your floor and your strategy sets your ceiling. So Ooh. hard work is always necessary, right? Like if you stop working hard, everything goes to zero. doesn't matter how good your strategy is. It's only a theory. But if you don't have a good strategy, then your hard work is often, I don't know if I want to say wasted, but it's not fully utilized. Um, you need to have exposure to things that have leverage or unbounded upside so that each unit of effort you're putting in gets you the most possible out. Um, another way that I like to look at it is what is the work that you do that keeps working for you after it's done? Because like a, a teacher talking to a classroom of 20 kids, that work is no longer working for her or him after it comes out of her mouth, right? It's like, I gave the lesson, now it's over. But if you record the lecture and put it on YouTube, the work, the one hour or two hours or 20 hours or whatever it was that you put into the video, that work is still working for you day in and day out as long as it's on YouTube. And so you want that kind of uh, duration to the work as well. Um, so leverage are, is one. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Are those lessons that you learned before or after you began your, your blogs and your email list? Um, yeah, well, I was definitely learning it along the way. And I, I should say, this is maybe another piece of my thinking about strategy, which is usually we talk about strategy as something that is done ahead of time. It's like a predetermined plan, and then you go and execute on it. But I think, and certainly that thinking ahead of time is very important to come up with that. But uh, I think often strategy is something that is emergent. It's kind of like coming as you're getting feedback along the way. And so you need this willingness to attempt things for trial and error, for personal experimentation, and then to use that feedback to update as you go along. Um, but to answer your question, it has definitely been something that has been clarified to me through the process of building a brand online, blogging, social media, et cetera, and through the launch of Atomic Habits when I felt the power of distribution and leverage much more uh, acutely than I had ever felt it before. So, so, so is it safe to say I that, appreciate it. is it safe to say that atomic habits and the campaign around atomic habits will serve as sort of a template for other professions um, as it relates to your exploration of strategy? Yeah. I don't know how useful other people will find it, but I, um, I certainly will be applying the ideas in different areas. Like, um, you know, we're thinking about launching a podcast this fall and a lot of what we did with the, the book, we're going to replicate in one form or another, uh, for that launch. Um, and generally I think your question, you know, gets to this idea that like all of us are biased to our own experience. So certainly for me, that launch was one of the biggest learning experiences I've had in my business career and uh, the success that's come after it. So I'm trying to take whatever lessons I can from that um, and see which of them are universal and which are maybe just more unique or we're luck in that particular case. Um, but 
anyway, to come back a little bit to your, your question a moment ago about the strategy and so on. Leverage, definitely a big part of it. Um, the other thing that I think is often overlooked with this is that everybody wants, you know, everybody wants this unbounded upside and like to get the most out of each unit of effort. But I don't hear too much discussion about what I guess I, what I, guess I would call like duration or persistence of the opportunity. So as an example, technically speaking, buying a lottery ticket is an asymmetric bet. You spend a dollar and you could win a million, right? It's like this, this very, this huge asymmetry and like what you could lose versus what you could gain. But most people don't view lottery tickets as a good use of time and money because the duration, the window in which it can be cashed in is so narrow. You have to hit it on that day or it's worthless. And uh, to give you an example of the opposite, I wrote this article uh, on my blog maybe five years ago or so. It's called The Physics of Productivity. And it did okay. I posted it. It was fine. It just kind of performed like a normal article. It didn't really blow up or anything. And it just kind of sat there in the background for a few years. And then two years ago, uh, a writer at the New York Times came across it. And I guess they liked it. So they, they wrote a piece in the Times and they, they linked to it in that. And the next day, a producer at CBS this morning read that article, clicked through, found my site. A week later, I was on CBS talking about the article. And then that was what got me the connection there so that I could go back uh, for launch day and talk about the book. And so in a sense, writing that article five years ago is what got me on CBS this morning on launch day for, for the book launch. Many people have habits they want to break and probably some habits other people want us to change. To make those adjustments, habits expert James Clear says we should think small. His popular blog gets 2 million visits a month. He's also a frequent speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, Major League Baseball, and NBA. Clear's new book is called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. James Clear, good morning. But I always think it's interesting if you were to ask me like three years ago, hey, was that article worth it? I'd have been like, I, I don't know, I guess. Like it was fine, but it didn't do a whole lot. But because it could have been, it was very unlike a lottery ticket. It could be doing work in the background. It could, it could get cashed in at any point over the next year or five years or 10 years. You don't know when it's going to take off. There are certain investments of time that are like that, that are much more persistent in their duration. And so those are the type of unbounded upside bets that you want because they can be cashed in at any point in the future. And so I think there's, there are certain qualities to asymmetric bets that make some better than others. And um, yeah, so I'm trying to like tease that apart. I think what you're essentially talking about is a concept that I've heard a lot more lately. And that is the value of being prolific, right? Mm. Uh, so in much the same way, you know, 2 p.m.'s business model is very similar. Um, I'm not nearly the writer that you are, and I'll never write a book. I don't think I have the patience. But I probably write 4,000 words a week. Mm. Uh, and the most frustrating thing about those words is on occasion, um, I'll invest days in a, in a report or a blog and nothing will happen. And then, like you mentioned, maybe the world catches up to it or maybe something happens in the periphery or maybe the economy changes and all of a sudden an evergreen blog that I wrote a year ago becomes more prescient and more um, communicative of the times. So 
I'm really fascinated by the pursuit of that concept in other industries and how that concept could, uh, could positively change other industries. Um, and I, th I think that you're at the forefront of that. Yeah, they're really fun ideas to toy with because I think they're very powerful. Um, and you also, uh, there's just like, like a lot of things that are connected to strategy that don't often get discussed. For example, uh, like having a margin of safety. A lot of people are feeling that now with, you know, um, the uncertainty that's in the world. And uh, you need to have a margin of safety. You need to have a buffer so that you have the ability to experiment. If you're always like redlining and if you're always right on the cusp of not being able to make it or not, um, you don't really have much of a choice to toy around with new ideas or to play with different things. And that experimentation is really helpful because that's where you can discover and kind of stumble across some new ideas. So margin of safety is connected to that. Uh, trial and error is connected to, to the concept. And um, anyway, so there are a lot of things that are kind of like that, that I think if you understand the power of leverage and the power of asymmetry, um, then you start to look for some of these other things that make it more likely that you can be able to take advantage of it. Interesting. Um, what's the biggest lesson that you think that you learned with the promotion of your book and, and sort of um, not the initial promotion, but, but post-publishing? Um, I'll say there are three. Uh, so the first is, I guess, what I just call like a concentrated strike or an intensity. So um, I've done well over 200 interviews about Atomic Habits, and I recorded 75 podcast interviews before the book came out. And I asked for all of those to, uh, to release during launch week. And I would say at least 90%, probably 95% all, all did agree to doing that. And I think the collective power of having that concentrated strike and having it all come out in the same tight window, um, it gave it this feel where it was like, oh, everybody is talking about this. Um, and so it made it feel like a bigger thing than probably it actually was. But that led to more people recommending it or trying it out or whatever. And I, I think, you know, this has been discussed many times by different marketers, but people need different touch points with a, a product before they feel like they're ready to buy. And so if someone's like, man, this is the fourth podcast I've heard this guy on like, okay, now it's like, maybe I'll actually check it out. So I think it, the, the importance of a concentrated strike is one. Um, the second is the importance of distribution. Um, you know, atomic habits has been translated into 47 languages. I think at this point, um, about 20 of them are, are complete and are out right now. The other 25 or so are in uh, being translated currently. But the, like, for me as an individual, I want distribution. Like I want the biggest email list possible, the most podcast listens, largest social media following, et cetera. And those are powerful things. But Penguin Random House is like this huge institution and it has been around for hundreds of years in various forms. And they've got this kind of distribution machine going. So on launch day, the book was in 600 Barnes and Nobles around the country. And now we've got, you know, 40 some languages where it's being spread around the world. And the scale of that, uh, without me having to do anything additional, I think is really powerful. And it's the first time I fully appreciated how strong distribution can be, uh, and how, how important it is. Um, the, the, the kind of the summary is like ideas are fairly easy to replicate, but distribution is very hard to replicate. And um, so that, that is like a really big strength that I think I'm feeling more than I had appreciated before. 
And then the third one is the power of word of mouth. And, you know, ultimately I, I did everything I could. I had, I think my email list was about five or 600,000 people when the book came out. I was doing everything I could to get it out there, pushing it to social media, all that stuff. But at some point, probably within the first month or two or three, I had told everybody I could tell. And um, at this point, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Like I'm not even really in charge anymore. Uh, it's just the people who are recommending it to their friends and so on. And I think the only way to do that, the only way to get that kind of word of mouth virality is to create something that's great, to create something that provides the, I, I like the way Seth Godin puts it, where he's like, something is remarkable if it is worthy of remark, right? It has to be like so good that it's worthy of talking about. And um, whether it's Elon designing like, you know, the first Tesla and making something that was like so fantastic and interesting that it just like exploded despite the fact that they didn't spend that much money on marketing um, or a book that goes and blows up or whatever it is. Uh, it's word of mouth is the most powerful engine. And the only way that you can earn it is by creating something that's fantastic. And even then you got to get lucky. But, uh, but you have to have, you have to cross that threshold, I think. Well, tell me if this is wrong, but a key component of that strategy is also patience, right? For sure. You, I think uh, this ties directly to what you mentioned just a minute ago, this idea of being prolific. You want to be prolific and patient, right? You want to be like, on an individual day, you want to have this like bias toward action where you're feeling like impatient about the work. It's like, I got to get the next article out. I got to... Uh, create the next product. We got to finish this next campaign. You're feeling this this bias toward action, but in the long run, you got to have this patience to go with that prolific nature. Because if you're willing to be prolific, but you're also willing to be patient, you're increasing the exposure that you have to good luck and to good outcomes. You, you don't necessarily know when something is going to take off for you or why, but if you're willing to keep showing up and you create this surface area for good things to happen then eventually, kind of like that article I mentioned getting picked up by the New York Times or whatever, um, eventually something good will happen. You just aren't sure what it is. But if you can have those two qualities, I think it can really put you in a strong position. I think that's well said. So how's life for you changed since then? Um, obviously, you're an Ohio, you're an Ohio boy. Um, not in beginnings, but Ohio tends to have a humility that that other states don't? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Like on the one hand, I just feel grateful that people are, are enjoying the work at all. Uh, you know, you put all this work in, you like hope it can become something. Um, it, it would have been worth it either way. I would have learned a lot, but it's better for it to be worth it this way. Um, more it pans out and does well. Um, but uh, how have things changed? I think the, fir the first thing that I felt most acutely over the, the year after the book came out was I suddenly had to get much better at saying no. And I still don't know that I'm good at that. Um, but it was like, it was almost like on a, mm, every two or three months, if I looked back, the things that I was getting offered those two or three months, uh, three months ago, I would have been like, this is the coolest thing that's happening this week or this month. But then it was like, no, I, now actually I need to be saying no to this. Um, and that's a very weird thing. I think generally speaking, the, the more that you, um, rise in your career, the less you need to, everybody always talks about saying no to like wasteful things like, Oh, you shouldn't waste time or procrastinate. You shouldn't spend all this time on YouTube or watch Netflix or whatever. 
And honestly, like, I kind of think those are the fairly easy things to cut out. Most people know that they shouldn't be doing those things. But the hard thing is to say no to good uses of time, but not great uses of time. Um, it's like items number, say like four or five and six on your to-do list are like the most dangerous ones because you can always convince yourself that they're worth doing. It's like, oh, this is kind of moving me forward. Like this is somewhat important to me, but they're not items one, two, and three. And so they're really distracting you from the highest and best use of your time. And so I, I felt that more, uh, more acutely than I have before. So that was, um, that was probably one change. And then uh, just kind of, there's this thing where you like have to get comfortable with uh, people talking about you without you being there. Um, and that was kind of like strange too. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know, people would send me a screenshot from like some online writers group and they'd be talking about me and Atomic Habits. And I was like, well, like partially that's cool and it's flattering and everything, but it's also weird to have a conversation going on without you there. So uh, I had to get used to that a little bit as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. There have been a bunch of changes. Travel, I was traveling so much more than before and that I, I had, have always loved travel, but I found my limit uh, that year where I was like, okay, this is more than what I want to be doing. Um, so now I know where that is and I can back it off. Um, but so that required a little bit of adjustment too. Fascinating. So it's, it's really interesting. I remember early on when you sent me the book and this sort of goes to your commentary on word of mouth and that type of influence. I probably had atomic habits as early as any person that wasn't in your direct circle. Um, given that we have a close proximity in Ohio, I remember getting it early on and I just remember sitting on it. Like I didn't, I didn't get around to reading it. Um, it wasn't until a year later, I had a little bit more time and I was far more interested in the concepts. I, I read it in like a day or two. Um, and it's one of my favorite books. It's on my wall. Um, oh, thanks man. That's awesome. You, you're, you're welcome. Uh, but that, that's beside the point. The point is, you know, it's, it was obviously the same quality of book, right? Nothing changed about the book itself. Mm. What, what changed about the book was the perception of the book. It went from, hey, this would be nice to read to, hey, this is probably really important if you want to get anything done right now. Atomic Habits was, was that book for me. I wonder, do you have any other experiences with stories like that where maybe initially the perception of the book or the, the perception of value of the book grew as the popularity grew? Yeah, I think those definitely go hand in hand. I mean, people, again, kind of implicitly know this. This is why brands want social proof and why, you know, people want evidence of testimonials and all that kind of stuff. And I tried to do whatever I could to build upon that a little bit, to use each little piece of uh, evidence as a foothold that I could like maybe climb to a slightly higher level. Like, um, you know, whenever I get a really good testimonial online, I'll retweet it or something, you know, like JJ Watt tweeted about the book the other day. And it is JJ Watt. Okay, we need to make sure, like, retweet that, send it out in the email, like, you know, like, let's get this exposure out there more. So I do try to capitalize on that a little bit. And I have heard occasionally from folks who say things like what you said. I had one guy who uh, reached out to me. He was just a reader. I didn't know him personally. But he was like, man, I, um, you know, he, he didn't pick it up or he wasn't that interested in it for a while. And then he just <laughs> sent me a message. He was like, I can't get away from you. And uh, it was basically <laughs> like, <laughs> like he just couldn't stop hearing about it from different places. 
and I think that counts for a lot. Um, so yeah, I try to, I try to magnify that in whatever way I can. Like we have, um, when people buy the book, uh, there are different areas in the book that ask them to, you know, you can, if you want to get, uh, additional downloads or some PDF templates or exercises, a habit tracker, different things throughout the book, go to this link and you can grab them. And, uh, so if you go there, you put your email in, we'll send you all those resources and PDFs and stuff. So now we've got all these people on the list who have bought the book and then we follow up with all of them, you know, two weeks later or whatever and say, Hey, if you've enjoyed it, like click here to leave a review. I think we've driven a lot of reviews as a result of that little simple email system. And, um, yeah, if you are thinking about buying the book and you don't know anything about it and you show up to the Amazon page and it has 5,000 reviews, you're like, oh, okay, maybe that's enough to get me to take it a little bit more seriously. So all of those things, you know, a little retweet here of a testimonial, another review to add onto the pile, it, it all kind of collectively moves things in the right direction, I think, without any one thing massively changing stuff. So you seem like a pretty um, curious person. What else are you studying right now? What are you practicing? Um, are there any fields that you're interested in above and beyond psychology and, and uh, I guess the the uh, the science of human motivation at this point? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I I do think curiosity is kind of one of my core personality traits, um, and I think that's probably served me really well. I I have come to appreciate the importance of that more over time. Um, I think it's better to be curious than it is to have raw intelligence, because uh, if you're curious, then you can figure a lot of things out. If you're just smart, then but you're bored, then uh, you're not going to dig in enough, I think, to get to, to that deep generalism that you talked about. And uh, sort of to that point, I'm just kind of like looking at my, I got my bookshelf on the other side of the room, but I do have a couple that are next to me right now. So like this book, this is a little known book that I, I have only heard of it once, but it's called The Craft of Power. Uh, it was written in the seventies. And um, anyway, I've been finding that interesting. So that's more about like, uh, it has more like politics and military stuff in it that I'm usually interested in, but it's just kind of interesting to hear about how people uh, go about achieving power. Uh, this one is the path of least resistance. And, um, I saw Patrick O'Shaughnessy recommend it. And, uh, I started looking into it more. It's, um, it's written by a guy who's kind of, he's like got touch points like, uh, he's like a musician and then like architecture. Um, and, uh, anyway, it's, it's definitely resonates with some of the ideas that I talk about in atomic habits, this idea that like, uh, your environment often shapes your behavior and you want to design an environment that's productive. So I'm interested in that. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading about uh, architecture and creating um, creating like livable neighborhoods uh, and livable spaces. So I'm like really interested in that. Um, and, uh, and then all the decision-making and strategy stuff that we were talking about earlier is still somewhat new to me. Like I had been focused more on habits and behavior and now I'm thinking more about strategy and choices. So yeah, I, I kind of always have a couple different things that I'm looking into, but those happen to be the ones that I'm, that I'm focused on right now. Do you think that the time that we're living in will have an impact on what you write next? I have already noticed that I, so first let me just say a little bit about my writing process. So when I'm working on a book or when I'm working on an article, um, I kind of have like this information gathering phase where I'm, you know, I'm like a squirrel, like just trying to look for little like nuts and nuggets of insight and then like collect them all in one place. 
So constantly, like right now, I'm just piling everything in the same Google Doc and then like sorting it just sort of roughly and getting it all there. And uh, when I did that for Atomic Habits, the first draft of Atomic Habits was like 720 pages. Um, and then the finished version was like 250. So I, I do that gathering phase and then I like whittle it down to what really matters. And so I just like refer to it like broad funnel type filter. So right now I'm in the broad funnel phase. And um, I have noticed that I'm already recording like stories and examples about COVID-19 and coronavirus and what, you know, how that illustrates a particular point that I was thinking about making. So I do, I do think it probably, I don't want to, the thing is like, uh, there's that Daniel Kahneman quote where he's like, nothing is as important as it seems as when you're thinking about it. And it's like, we're all living this right now. And so it feels like the most important thing in the entire universe. And in some ways it is. Um, But once we come out the other side of this in two years or five years or whatever, you know, we'll look back on it as a very interesting point and an important moment. Uh, But a lot of life will have returned to normal. So I don't, I don't want the book to only be examples about that. Um, But I I probably, I could see having, uh, having one or two in there. So what's next for you business wise, uh, beyond authorship? Do you, do you consult at all? Do you speak? I'm sure that you're speaking at companies and things of the such. What does that look like and how has that changed? Yeah. Um, so the main revenue streams in the business right now are books, keynote speaking. Uh, I have an online course about building better habits and, um, uh, a little bit of affiliate revenue from Amazon and stuff like that. I don't do uh, affiliate, big affiliate pushes for brands or courses or anything. Um, but you know, my site gets a fair amount of traffic so that the Amazon stuff can add up a little bit too. Um, but what I'm noticing is, and what I'm feeling, and this is a great problem to have, but I, I am feeling like it's a little bit, it needs to be de-risked in a, a little bit. Um, most of the business revolves around atomic habits, either the sale of the book, uh, the book driving interest in keynote speaking, or the book driving interest in signing up for the online course. And so I feel like we need to build out the diversify the revenue streams a little bit more. Um, so writing new books is one way to do that in the long run. It gives you more topics, more entry points of speaking, et cetera. So we're going to do that. Um, and then I mentioned a podcast. Uh, I think going into a different form of media and uh, exploring ideas in a different format aside from books and writing is going to be a nice way to diversify over the long run. Also, I feel super uncomfortable on video. So like a YouTube channel would be a terrible choice for me, but I love audio as a format. And I actually think it in, in a lot of ways, I think it's better than video because it's so diverse in the, the amount of places that you can listen to it. Um, so anyway, uh, podcasts, obviously having ads is an easy way to monetize. We could also do a subscription. I'm still kind of toying with, with choices there, but I'm open to both of those. And then, um, and then some kind of, uh, paid or sponsored version of the newsletter is an interesting one that I'm thinking about. I already am putting a lot of work into newsletter. It's so far, it's just been free and it could still be free and we could just have like a little sponsored slot at the bottom or something. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that. How active is your newsletter newsletter right now, if you don't mind me asking? So we've got about 700,000 subscribers. Uh, we add about 1,200 to 1,500 a day net after unsubscribes. Um, I'm hoping we can get to 2,000 a day or something around there uh, over the next year or so. That's kind of what we're working toward. Um, 
And then open rate is about 35 to 40%, um, depending on the message. But most of them are like almost dead in the 36, 37% range. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, I think that kind of gives you a good, a good yeah, idea. Yeah, sure. So, so let's talk about the economics of that newsletter. Obviously, I'm in the newsletter business. Um, your audience is, is larger than mine. I think that that's easy to say. Um, I have a very niche newsletter focused on uh, sort of the intersection of media and commerce, which is an issue that you're dealing with right now, right? Um, you're trying to figure out how to diversify your revenue channels. Uh, as it relates to your newsletter, you know, why not, why not, you know, paid, paid placements or, or top of the fold ads at this point? Um, do you feel like you would have an audience for that? You know what? It's interesting. I, so I'm open to it and I think, and we just started exploring it a little bit over the last month or two. Uh, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. I'm happy to, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, but uh, I think I had a huge bias against it, I think is the honest answer. Um, when I was starting out, so I've, I've been running my business for about 10 years, specifically working on jamesclear.com and what I do now for about eight years. And um, all the bloggers that I followed when I got started, that was kind of my entry point um, was, was through the blogosphere and starting the blog and then like the business has kind of grown out of that. Um, it's funny how different areas of the, the blogosphere are totally cool with different things. Like if you started a, a cooking blog or a finance blog, they all have ads in the sidebar, ads within the content, whatever, like it's super normal. But if you started in like the self-improvement space, like I did, it was almost like you were criticized for having ads and like you needed to figure out how to launch a course or how to write a book. Like that was the way to monetize. And um, there's a, this is, I think, an important quality for all entrepreneurs. Like the, the ways to, the number of ways to succeed in business is very broad and very wide. And you need to be willing to check your uh, ego a little bit and your need to have status in your particular industry to try some new things that may be very innovative and useful for you. So I did end up trying ads for, a, uh, we gave it like about a one year test uh, two years ago, I think. And um, sidebar ads and all that stuff, I think they're just, it's not worth it. I'd rather have the conversion to email uh, and use that space in a more effective way. But newsletter ads or podcast ads, the CPMs are way higher. And um, essentially what I'm really looking for, I want to run a super lean business that's also incredibly profitable. So I'm not going to have a big team and I want to do the things that are like the 80-20 version. I don't need to, I'm not really interested in having a hundred different revenue streams because I don't want to manage a hundred things. But I do want to have whatever the top six revenue streams are uh, and have exposure to that. So I'm kind of slowly stumbling my way into it, but I do think newsletter ads and podcast ads could be a useful way to, to monetize the platform more than I currently do. So that you brought up an interesting point and I agree with you. There's something about authenticity that prevents you from pursuing certain business verticals. And I'm very similar. There, there are no ads in my newsletter though. I'm, I'm open to it for the right brands, right? Um, in the self-improvement space, who do you, enjoy observing who do you dislike observing so the my heroes or mentors or the people that i've looked to um have gradually become my peers over time which has been a really cool thing when i started early on the three people that i was looking at when before i started my very first site were leo babalta who ran zen habits still does 
um, Chris Gillibo, who's running the Art of Nonconformity, and again, still does, uh, and Trey Ratcliffe, who uh, is a photographer, so totally different industry and field, but I was really interested in photography at the time. And those were three of the, really the only three people that I followed closely who I knew were making a living from having a blog or having a website. So uh, they were the ones that kind of pulled me into the, the sphere. And then I got going, I got to know a lot more people and, and gradually over time. Uh, fast forward to today, the people whose work that I like reading the most, and that's kind of my number one metric now. Like I've got, I have the business side of my brain, which I really like that stuff. I really like trying to improve conversion rate and think about the optimal revenue streams and all of that. Uh, but then I also have like the editorial or the creative side. And for most of my peers that, that I'm most interested in connecting with or like hanging out with, it's people whose work I really respect. Um, and so uh, I love the articles that Morgan Housel writes. I think he does a great job. Uh, he writes about finance at Collaborative Fund. Um, Shane Parrish and I are close. And so obviously all the stuff he does at Farnham Street uh, is great. Uh, Tim Urban and Wait But Why. Tim and I are good friends. And uh, I think when he... I think there was a little bit of a before and after moment when he launched Wait But Why, specifically his AI series and then the Elon series. Um, before that, blog posts were kind of a different thing. And he came in and suddenly like, were, he basically wrote like a book and then was like, no, no, this is a blog post. And it was like a whole different level of quality. So the, the standard was raised, uh, I think, after, uh, after he showed up and started doing some of that stuff. So um, anyway, uh, Morgan, Shane, Tim, um, who else do I really like reading right now? Um, there's honestly, like, there's a long list of people who, uh, you know, I'm probably like, uh, should be mentioning by name, but pretty much everybody who I follow on Twitter, I very tightly curated my Twitter feed and uh, I follow all of them, whether it's because of their blog or their tweets or their podcasts, uh, because I respect the work that they're doing. So um, that's probably the, the place for my long list. And I noticed that you, you are biased towards writers versus, uh, videographers, I guess, video as a medium or podcasting as a medium. Is that, is that fair to say? I think it's true. I think I'm mostly biased that way because that's what I've had more experience with in the past. Now that we're working on starting a podcast, I'm becoming more exposed to that. And so there are a variety of podcasters that I love. So, you know, there are obvious picks like, you know, Ira Glass and This American Life or Jad and Radio Lab. Um, I think they do great work. But I also have come to enjoy some of these new shows a lot as well, like Reply All from Gimlet, I think has done really well. Um, 99% Visible, Roman Mars. Uh, this is Criminal uh, by Phoebe Judge. All of those are like really great shows and um, they have different elements that I really respect about them. Like uh, Reply All, for example, I was listening to some of their episodes recently. They do this interesting thing where they'll tell a story uh, and they'll like try to be uncovering the answer to it. Like they were the, one of the recent episodes a lot of people were talking about was this guy had this song stuck in his head and he couldn't figure out like who the artist was. And so the, the course of the episode is them trying to get to figuring out who this, who actually created this song. And uh, they have all these different theories. And near the very end, they come to this woman who was like a radio producer. And uh, they were like, but there was one more person to talk to. And they went to her and she had this theory that nobody had said before, which is that he, this guy was like blending songs in his head. It wasn't actually one song. He was like combining them. And so you thought, oh, there's this twist in the story. This is going to be the answer. But then after they did that, there's one more person to talk to. 
they came back again and they said, actually, there was something else we hadn't thought about. And then that was the real answer. So they had this kind of like false summit at the end of the episode. And um, yeah, like that's just really clever storytelling. So it doesn't have to be written. You could do it in podcast form. You can do it in video form. So I, I appreciate any form of craftsmanship like that. I've had more exposure to it through writing in books, but I see it all kinds of places. Um, one, one more example of this. So Maggie Rogers, I've been listening to a lot of her music recently and I think she's like done a really great job. And she has uh, an Instagram post that she put up, I don't know, maybe six months ago or something where one of her like more well-known songs, it was the picture of the notes that she had been taking in the studio about what edits we should make. Should we add a chime here? Should we wait, wait an extra two seconds before we bring this in? Whatever. And it's just awesome to read through her notes because I love people who they can't help but get it right. Like it bothers them if it's not, if the details are not right. And I love that level of craftsmanship everywhere, whether it's like Hakeem Olajuwon working on a drop step or whether it's, you know, Maggie Rogers working on taking notes for the, the song that she's creating. That level of craftsmanship uh, in all fields, I think is, is awesome and fascinating. Interesting. So I have, I want to get to this question before uh, we move on really quickly. This is from Michael Harris. Uh, he asked, um, curious about how he thinks about refining his content, looking at his annual reviews. He had a lot of travel photo lifting and it slowed over time as, as atomic habits developed. I've struggled yeah. with limiting options and I would love to hear his thoughts. Yeah, I definitely, um, I was just talking to my wife about this last night. If you look back on, uh, like my history, if you look back like eight years ago or 10 years ago or something, there was uh, I, you may be familiar with this cause you're, you're a fan of fitness as well, but they're like the power ropes, the ropes that you can, you know, do all these different exercises with. So uh, like, I don't know, eight years ago or so I got certified in those went to Michigan, did like a two day certification class, whatever. And uh, I, this was very early on in my writing career. Nothing had really taken off yet. I was thinking, I don't know, maybe I'll do something in fitness or maybe I'll do wh whatever. Um, and now you look back at it and my wife was like, you never did anything with that. I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, it seems like a silly thing to have gotten certified in now. It, it like isn't related to what I'm doing for day-to-day -day work. But I think it's important to place a lot of little bets like that, especially earlier in your career, or early in a project. It's important to explore a lot. And then um, I gradually, to, to his question, I gradually have started to stumble into what, what works well for me. So uh, even in a more refined sense, in the business sense, um, finally, when the book came out, I was like, finally, I found something that I'm good at selling. Because before that, you know, like whether it was online courses or selling on a webinar or pitching stuff in person, like none of it felt right to me. It all, it all just, it didn't, it didn't stick. I wasn't good at it. Um, but books, books feel right. It's like, all right, I can put in two years of work up front. I'm willing to delay the gratification. I'll create the most comprehensive guide on that topic. And then I can just come out and I can just talk about it. Like we are here or on an interview or whatever. And uh, it just feels way more natural to me. And it's like, okay, this is one that actually works for me. So I think the answer to his question is, yeah, a lot of my annual reviews used to have more uh, stuff that was related to fitness or related to travel photography. Cause I thought maybe this will be the direction the site goes. Like maybe that'll end up becoming the business. Um, but it turns out that what people were most interested in was my thoughts on strategy, on habit formation, on peak performance. And the more that I realized that, the more I started to double down in those areas. So I want to push back on something because I think that you are underplaying fitness's role in your current uh, reality, I guess you could say. Uh, even in your book, 
you discuss your evolution as an athlete, right? So to recap, um, you went to Denison, correct? And yep. uh, you discuss your your growth from. I don't. I don't want to call you skinny. I feel like that's derogatory. Oh no, that's uh, not. That's a hundred percent accurate. Is what it is. <laughs> uh, you discuss your your journey. You bulked up. You you went from from uh, I think bench warmer to put it nicely to to starter to you know I think you're probably going to end up on walls at that school when it's all said and done if you're not there already. Um, I would venture to guess that fitness played a, a major role in your determination of atomic habits as a career pursuit. What, 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 would, what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, I think uh, I cannot imagine, well, one, I still, <laughs> even now you may feel this as well. Uh, I, I wonder, um, you have more, even more exposure to the uh, fitness world and the uh, realm of athletics than I have. And uh, as soon as my career ended, it was like, man, for 18 years, I was an athlete. What am I now? And that loss of identity, uh, I think I still feel that in a lot of ways. And I still identify as an athlete in a lot of ways, even though I'm not competing anymore. So um, there's a, it definitely is like deeply tied into who I am uh, and certainly has taught me all kinds of lessons about hard work and persistence and so on and so forth. Um, I think the, the, the point I was trying to make is that it's not my job now, whereas, you know, my job is writing about habits and so on. So, uh, in that sense, it didn't become my career, even though it is like part of who I am and influences the moment in, in certain ways. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, those are definitely fair statements to make. Well, James, uh, I appreciate our time together. Uh, you know, you are a magnificent writer. Atomic Habits has been a wonderful book. I look forward to your next project. Um, I'd love to continue talking about your newsletter and that business offline. I'm sure there's stuff that I can learn or things that I can contribute. But um, thank you for giving me the time to discuss these topics. And uh, I look forward to whatever you have coming next. Yeah, of course. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to talk to you.